everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast, where we engage with culture and equip the local church in faith and ministry. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the Communications Coordinator at High Point Church. This is one of our Ask Me Anything follow-up episodes where we answer the remaining questions from the AMA time after our Sunday service. Nick Gibson, our lead pastor, and Jill Reese, his content and ministry coordinator, are going to answer a variety of questions related to and unrelated to the sermon, including several more that we received on baptism. Also, we wanted to give you a heads up that the staff had some competing priorities come up this week, so we will not be releasing an episode this Thursday. Our new series, It's Not Just Politics, will instead start next Thursday. If you have any further questions, email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. We'd love to have you join us for future AMA times on Sundays at 9 a.m. at highpointchurch.org slash live. Thanks for listening. Hello, Nick. All right, we are following up on the Ask Me Anything from today's sermon. We're back in the uh, series on Nehemiah, and um, we've got a number of questions unrelated to the sermon and related to the sermon. So we'll start with those unrelated to the sermon. Great. Okay, first one. It has been said that evangelicals, or at least white evangelicals, overwhelmingly vote for Trump. However, I am repulsed by what I saw and heard from him on TV. I can't fathom that it's something that it is something Jesus would vote for. Does the fact that I feel differently from the majority of Christians indicate that I am blind in something or in other words, what does it look like to be obedient to the will of the heaven of heavenly father oops, of the heavenly father in this election? Hmm. Yeah. So first of all, I, I don't, I don't know if the, seeming consensus of a lot of evangelicals to vote for Trump is an indication that that's God's will. Um, I I think one of the things to recognize is that the New Testament says very little about governmental involvement and participation, and that in many cases, the New Testament um, indicates that although government is is for our good and can be good, it's also as a power center going to be affected by corruption and difficulty and perverse incentives and all kinds of things that make it really messy. So one of the reasons religious people of all kinds, but Christians in particular struggle with politics um, is because there is no way to get through it clean. Like politics is like war. There's so many things going on at once. You're going to do something wrong. Like everything does both good and harm. And so if you want to be clean, you want your hands to be clean. You just can't, do it in politics, especially in a diverse country with a diverse nation, all that kind of thing. So um, as somebody who follows politics, as somebody who is interested in policymaking, as somebody who has uh, a minor in political science and all that kind of thing, I, I just I, I don't think that most Christians should get too personally exercised about this. I, I tend to think that when people have very strong opinions about our election, um, that probably they're focusing too much on something. Usually what it means is they're getting their news from just one news source. In relationship to the voting of evangelicals, it is true that um, white evangelicals, particularly in non-urban centers, do tend to vote overwhelmingly for Trump. Um, however, the more times a month they go to church, at least in the primary, when in, in 2016 when Trump was primarying, the more an evangelical went to church, the less likely they were to vote for him in the primaries. And in the places where families were more intact, like the heavily populated Dutch counties and places like Iowa, voted for Trump the least also. So it seems like there is a a rural breakdown effect relative to Trump. However, so so for example, the, the evangelical vote was not very concentrated on Trump in the primaries. 
in 2016. But when evangelicals got in a situation where they were choosing between President Trump as a Republican candidate and Hillary Clinton as the Democratic one or Joe Biden now, then it becomes in some ways a divide of worldviews. Um, so there's a couple things. If you listen to conservative news sources, what you're going to find out is that Biden is a fairly corrupt person and that he's done a lot of really terrible things. Um, most people don't re- have no political memory, so they don't they don't remember how he treated Robert Bork, for instance, in Bork's confirmation hearing to the Supreme Court. Um, Biden was very accusatory towards him. He attacked Thomas Sowell, a black scholar who was explaining why um, affirmative action and so on was not necessarily good for black people in America. And Biden, I don't even think he really understood what Sowell was arguing as an economist. And so Biden has a kind of a long history of not being fantastic also. So some of it is just that. Some of it is just, oh, there's a lot of Christians that feel like Christians are supposed to vote Republican because Republicans believe in um, family values, personal accountability, those sorts of things. They tend to believe that maintaining personal religious freedom is a very high value because a lot of people over, let's say 40, remember communism and they remember that it's very easy in this world to fall into totalitarianism. Part of it also depends on your news source and who you think is more prone to lead us down the road to harming democracy or personal freedoms, for example. So there's some people who believe that white supremacy is the biggest danger, that blood in soil racism is. Um, there's other people who feel that blood and soil racism is actually a very small group of people in America, but that the highest likelihood that we're going to fall into totalitarianism is probably through statism, which is related to historic communism and is connected with groups like Antifa. Even though Antifa calls itself anti-fascist, it's it's not really anti-fascist. It's it's anti it's anti-republican, which isn't the same thing. And so um, they tend to have fascist tendencies. Of course, fascism is a kind of socialism. People, I talked about that in the last podcast, but people don't really understand that. It's a kind of statism. Fascism actually is statism. And statism um, has, in the last hundred years has been much more likely to bring about the destruction of real democracy, totalitarianism, to destroy personal freedoms, and to lead to mass murders at the hands of government. Um, in the last 150 years, if you're going to be mass murdered, the most likely way you're going to get mass murdered is by government and by socialist governments. Um, and usually not profoundly racist ones. I mean, yeah, Hitler's was used the Jews as a scapegoat, but it was the socialistic nationalism, the Nazi party that led to that. Socialism always needs a scapegoat people and then it just kills them. So, but communism was much worse, right? So there's all these kinds of things that you have to decide on, right? And um, some people are going to look at those and they're going to think, on balance, Trump is probably going to be better. They don't really like him, but on balance, they're going to get good judges. They're going to, you know, whatever. Um, a big part of this is that for a lot of Christians, um, abortion is the biggest issue. So if you believe that um, pre-born human beings are human lives, and if you believe that destroying one of those lives is killing or destroying a human life that deserves to be protected and have rights, and if the abortion rate in America is something around 800,000 pre-born humans, then you're talking about a Holocaust every year. Like there, there is no injustice in America that could possibly compare to the horror of abortion. Like it's like nothing's even close. And so if you are morally connected to that, right? So like we've spent a lot of time this year, like trying to get morally connected to policing and what people call systemic racism and whether or not we've been sensitive enough, which is the answer is probably not right to like um, struggles that people who of the, that aren't the majority race in America have had, right? There's a lot of Christians now who are not at all morally connected to the moral horror of abortion. 
And so I think that's a question you need to ask yourself is, are you connected to it? Cause like, is abortion going to stop? Probably not. Like we don't have the votes. Right. And, but more abortion has been more and less. Right. Um, Republicans say they want to end it. Um, there are some people who argue that there are fewer abortions in America when Democrats maximize the welfare state. So when Democrats are in charge and they spend a lot more through the government, so there's more help for people that fewer people get abortions. So some people argue that even though the Democratic Party is very much for abortion, their policies lead to fewer abortions. And so there's some questions on that basis. So so you you can see here, like if you know enough about politics and policy, I, like I can argue it both ways. You really can argue it both ways. Um, I don't think um, that there's no difference. I do think there's a difference. I'm very much. I very much vote for one person rather than the other. Um, and it tends to follow, follow party lines, though not always. Um, but I just, I don't think you should measure yourself on the basis of that. Like what, whether or not you support Trump or not, I just don't think should be the measure of whether or not you're following God's will. Now, following God's will in an election, right? That isn't either or. In theory, if Jesus was a citizen and he had to vote, he would vote. He'd and vote to for pick one of these the right two. one. And yeah. there would therefore be I think a that gets God, to, so to the next doing the next good thing. I don't think God that you is know to do. You so, like to you had that. in our last series, you compared doing do the, the next right thing, whereas there's yeah. this one hidden choice that's the right one, and God is sort of testing us. Um, versus, He wants us to do the next good thing in obedience that we know to do, um, and that is based in our what our conscience says is right. Yeah. I th- so w- one thing I think is worth doing is for some people who are really torn about this from a Christian perspective is there on YouTube, if you, if you yes, um, yeah. search on um, Trump debate, um, David French and Eric Metaxas, Eric Metaxas, it's Eric, right? Eric Metaxas. Eric Metaxas is a Christian author. He, he's written a number of books, Bonhoeffer, Luther, Wilberforce, and he's very much pro Trump. He's just kind of like, yes, Trump is, has a kind of a blustery, like, kind of negative persona. But if you look at what he does, it's much more in line with Christian faith and Biden's terrible. And French is kind of like, Dave French is also an evangelical Christian, believes in Jesus, goes to church. He was the head of fire, which was like a academic freedom and religious freedom group. Mm -hmm. He litigated on behalf of Christians all over the country. And he is a, I do not like, he's a not Trumper. Like, and he's very adamant about that. And sometimes it's just helpful to listen to two people who are very much believers, very much love God, very yeah, much want to do the right really thing, helpful. very much engaged in politics, and they are just on totally different sides of this. And and then like listen to the debate and decide which side you're on. It really what it really comes Yeah, I mean obviously I think there is a right answer to this, but if I answer that, all I'm doing is substituting my belief for the will of God. And I just don't think that's appropriate as a pastor. I mean, if I was if I was working in politics right now, I would be very opinionated about politics, and I have opinions. But I'm much more interested in the people who are worried about this to relax and realize that it's just their job to do the best they can. They should vote the best they can for what they think is best. If they want me to, like, if they literally want me, their pastor, to tell them who to vote for, that's what they want. Then they can PM me or email me privately. And maybe I'll tell them, even though I, I don't really trust people not to tell everyone. Yeah, I think it's and also that, that important to remember. I was, and it's hard as I was reading this question, what like I thought of was how it depends so I, on I, I walk a what fine line. you tend toward, what your views tend toward, and then what you see the other side as and who you're surrounded by. Because when I read this question, I know that technically I've heard that white evangelicals vote for Trump more, but the all the evangelicals I'm surrounded by 
who are are not. And I I see all over my social media. Again, this is just a media source that like I use abortion or I I hear <laughs> I abortion. None of them are going to vote for Trump. Well, that right. is pro life, but you're not pro life unless you're actually voting more for this because then you're not holistically pro-life and that seems to be the like biggest argument right and yeah that's true (laughs) but you have to vote for something (laughs) yeah right right if you're not blm and if you're not right right which i think i think i i think that's kind of true but i also think right i think that's an argument that misses proportion because there were nine unarmed black men killed last year in america by police after hun- a couple hundred million interactions with police and there were 800,000 children's lives ended by abortion. And listen, a huge portion of those are black children. A huge portion. One of the reasons why the black population percentage in America has stagnated over the last 35 years is because so many black babies are aborted. In many cities, more black babies are aborted than are born. Yeah, it's it's just so tricky, and I think and it has my, created my point a terrible is that population stagnation there's, among like black you've Americans. been saying. There's, and I think it's really sad. there's both sides um, of this, but, yeah. and so, yeah, uh, yeah, it I mean, is all important. All lives are important, but you do have to make some decision of who, what party you're going to vote for, and who you're going to vote for. And it will, you will be choosing one over the other in some sense. But as the church, we can be for both things <laughs> that are good. Um, so yeah, I think it's really, it's difficult, but comes down to conscience. I, I do. I will say, I will come out and say this politically, whether or not you think president Trump should be appointing another justice right now. I love Amy Coney Barrett. I'm so excited about her being on the court. Like just her lectures, her constructivist position, her view of the law. She seems very sane. Very deep biblical faith even though she's yeah. a roman catholic she seems like so reasonable faith. compared she's to like, everyone she's a right legit <laughs> christian who is very likely going to be on the court yeah yeah and she is a top rated oh yeah and she is a top legal mind i am very very excited about her being on the court um yeah if i could trade having a democrat congress and a republican court yeah what a world that would be. I might go for that. If we could, it would be, it would be especially fun if we could have a nonpartisan president. We just like whatever CEO was the most successful. There might be over the last that five too, years. There you go. At yeah. just running their company <laughs> would just then run the executive branch. Cause that's all it is. It's just a huge business, you know, and then let Congress make laws. Oh yeah. 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 Anyway, so yeah, I mean, yeah, so I, yeah, Christians are going to think this through differently. I do think a lot of Christians are extremely politically naive, but I find that among the conservative ones and the liberal ones. I find a lot of young liberal Christians to be incredibly politically naive. Um, but I also find a lot of, I also find a lot of conservatives that are that way. And, and here's the thing. Not everybody has time to read thousands of pages on political philosophy and political history and political policymaking and blah, 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 blah. We just don't have time. So you just end up believing whoever you trust, right? So choose carefully somebody who you really trust academically and morally and personally that you think they have, that you think that they have thought these issues through pretty much like you would. And then just ask them how they vote and then vote like that. It's fine. Anyway, sorry, we spent too much time on this. We should keep going. Yeah, we need to move on. But okay. All right. Next question. Is being bored while reading the Bible a cause for concern? Uh, depends on which section of the Bible, but yeah, generally, um, yeah. So, but yeah, but still, I would want to say, you know, like 
uh, why. So like if you've been reading the Bible for 15 years and you're bored reading it because you feel like you've read it all before, that's different than like if you're reading it for the first time and you're kind of bored because you can't really understand it because you don't have enough background. So I would say, yes, if you're reading the Bible and you are bored, it is cause for concern because it won't help motivate you to read it more, right? Um, if, it, if you find it- Do you have any quick suggestions? Yeah, read a different part. Discuss what you're reading with somebody um, later. Read the same thing mm-hmm. as them. Um, read a different translation. That's what I've uh-huh. done. Um, cause I've read the same, like the NIV over and over and then just would read and nothing would, I just knew what the word said. <laughs> so nothing would sink in. And so reading different, it said in a different way really helped. Right. Me. So like if you're prone to like studying small passages of the Bible, just read more of it, like sit down and try to read half of Luke mm-hmm. in one sitting. Or if you're used to reading like a lot, then like read just like two sentences pay attention to every word like just change stuff up is what i would do if it's so Mm -hmm. but it really depends on where this question is coming from if i was counseling this person i'd ask like 15 or 16 questions about like what about this have you read this sort of thing and how do you feel when you do that and like i I would do a lot of kind of probing to figure out if it's an attitude issue or if it's just they don't know enough background information to understand what's happening they're reading Mm -hmm. too fast they're not used to interpreting text they just were poorly educated like there's a lot of reasons why this can happen so I would say try those things mm-hmm. and then like, I talk to somebody, talk to a mentor or a pastor or a small group leader. Yeah. Cause there's a, cause yes, it's a cause for concern, but I can't tell you mm-hmm. it's a symptom that could have various causes. Mm-hmm. That's good. All right. Next question. What is the biblical difference between happiness and joy? So there, there isn't really um, a new t- a biblical word for happiness. Um, the the word that um there the word Greek word markarios is like translated blessedness often um and so generally the word is blessed versus joyful does that make sense wait instead of joyful or instead, instead of happy, happy? yeah blessed yeah so yeah. like okay. so blessedness in some ways is a, is a state so um so for example in the Sermon on the Mount Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will see the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That the, that Greek word is markarios, which is um, blessed, right? Or like in a state of like something good, right? So f- blessed, fortunate, or you can translate it happy, but it means something like privileged as the recipient of divine favor, right? So if you're blessed, you're privileged as the recipient of divine favor for some reason. That's an objective category. That's like, you are blessed. You're in the state of blessing. So like if I had, let's say $2,000 in my bank account, that's, we're not talking about how I feel about it. I have $2,000 in my bank account. It's an objective fact about me. And so to be blessed is to be privileged with, as a recipient of divine favor, you are blessed. It's a state. Joy is an internal condition. It is the sense, the, the feeling, the emotion of wholesome happiness. Does that make sense? Sometimes people want to distinguish joy as like a lasting thing rooted in theological belief and conviction. And happiness is like a frothy, emotive, sensory kind of pleasure. Um, I don't think that you should argue that from the language of the Bible. 
I don't, I don't think the Bible, because the Bible just doesn't use word, the word happy like we use the word happy in English now. The, the idea that like God gives you a deeper, more satisfying thing that's more substantive and less vaporous than, the, than worldliness is totally right. So don't don't think I'm saying that's not true. That like Christian happiness in Christ is like that 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 that's not like a deeper thing that we call joy. It is, but I wouldn't play word games with people. And be like, well, you know what? You have happiness, but I have joy. Hmm. Wouldn't you like to have joy? I mean, just don't like don't be pedantic, right? <laughs> but it's it mm-hmm. is true that um, there yeah. is a kind of happiness that is fleeting, and that's not what the Bible means by joy. That's true, you know. So that's how that's how I answer that, but the but the the idea of blessedness or happiness in that sense to be blessed is an objective state to to have received a blessing that's objective. Next question: The daily devotional gave me a blueprint for doing a daily devotional. Can we continue to have this resource moving forward? Um, the the answer is it depends how much time Jill has, but yes. The other but the other <laughs> thing you could do is you just take the devotional that Jill made and you just. Put a different passage under scripture and then like kind of write your own reflection question and then pray the same questions when you get the bottom. I mean, you can like just use the devotional again and just, you just add different stuff. Um, But yeah, I think, I think Jill, you do have some plans to, to produce some further devotionals. Yes. Yes. I want to say two things about this. First, we're not going to always have a devotional provided for you. And that is purposeful. Not because of my time, but because I think it's important that you learn how to do this for yourself and decide what to read and make the rhythms yourself. And so it is it's perf- it's very purposeful in one sense to do it as a church and it does unite us and it's great to do it all at once together. The same thing, but um it's really important that you learn to do it yourself. So what we're going to do is have devotionals that correspond with the sermon series at um, at specific times throughout the year. So the fall series is a big time for us to c- kind of regroup and come back together after the f- summer. Um, and then Advent is another time that um, we're coming together and doing these liturgies together. And so I'm planning to do one for Advent. So that's pretty soon. Um, and then maybe some other times. I think that's good. Let me give people a little blueprint. If you like, if you're if you're reading this, here's just what I did in college. When I went to college, I realized I had to have quiet time, so I had got a little journal, right? I set aside a specific time every day, and then I read a portion of scripture, usually like the scripture under some heading in my translation of the Bible, right? And then I wrote about a paragraph on what is God saying, not what do I want to hear, not what do I think or what I feel, what I, how I apply it, but just. Um, I'm trying. You know how, like, when you have a, a difficult conversation with somebody, you you repeat back to them what they said. You're like, okay, what I hear you saying is blah, blah blah, right? Just to make sure that's right. I did that first, so I would write a little paragraph. Okay, I read this parable by Jesus. Here's what Jesus says. Here's the point Jesus seems to be making, as though I was writing it for some other person. You know, not getting myself personally involved yet. Okay, so I'd write that. Then I would say, okay, that's what it means. Now, how does that affect me? Right? Then I'd get personal. Okay. Now that I'm clear on what Jesus is saying, now, how does this affect me? How, what should I take from this? Right? And I read about a paragraph on that, about 25 minutes maybe, and then I'd pray. Or sometimes I'd journal a little bit, just how I felt about it, what I was what I was thinking, how this connected with what I read the day before, whatever. And then I would write down some progress and then I would, then I would pray. And I would specifically pray relative to what I just learned. 
So I would, I would pray a prayer out of the devotional. God, help me to take this seriously. Help me to see this in my daily life. Help me to understand why you teach this, right? And so on. And that's it. That's it. 35, 40 minutes, right? But you could do it. You could do it shorter than that, obviously. You could do it in 10 minutes, you know? So, but so, and once you, when you do that, and then, and then praying through the stuff at the end of what Jill put in the devotional can be very helpful too. But if you do that, you'll, man, you'll get a lot out of every devotional. I mean, I, you won't feel it always, but, but more, you will find yourself over a month growing, you know? So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's similar to what I've done. Journaling has really helped me. And so I encourage It helps that most as well. people. Um, just yeah, it, it helps, helps most it people stick. because it yeah, yeah. aids in retention. Yeah. Um, yeah. A few more resources if you want to learn how to read the Bible or want some sort of place to start. Um, Daniel Doriani has a book called Getting the Message that talks a lot about interpreting the Bible. Um, but just doing what Nick said is a great place to start and you don't need to read that whole book <laughs> if you don't have time for that. Um, and then I've really enjoyed um, She Reads Truth and there's also He Reads Truth. They have the same studies, but they are just different designs, whether you are a male or a female. Um, so yes, they have very, it's very much just the Bible, um, but then they have some cross-reference passages, but they don't really explain it for you. And so it's been really challenging for me to think through like why how does this tie into that passage and to dig a little bit um, it, that those studies have more reading per day than the one that I made for this last series. But um, they also have a similar rhythm of taking a few days off so you can catch up and, and things like that. So I've enjoyed those and they have just books that you can study like John. I've done John. I've done Isaiah. Yeah. And we could also provide, if you personally struggle with this, we can provide a mentor. We have a bunch of people that we just, we took like 25 people through Dan, the Doriani book just recently in the elder prep course. And so they're all ready. We're going to go to help if you need help. So contact us. All right. We should keep moving. Yes, we should. Okay. From last week sermon, um, when you mentioned the history of the church being something like three thirty five hundred years to what were you referring as the starting point? Or did you just mean a long time? Um, I was talking about Moses, like the, the formation of the Jewish people under Moses as the great steward over all God's house. So um, there's a number of places in the New Testament that refer to that is the church or the, the people of God and that there's continuity. So that that's that's where I marked it. You could go back a little further to Abraham, you know, and, and get back a little further than that, but I usually start there if I if I'm going to use the ex- more expansive definition. But yes, Jesus was 2000 years ago. So 3500 is definitely more than that. That's correct. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. These are some questions that are follow up from this morning's AMA or this Sunday's AMA. Um so you talked a little bit about baptism, infant baptism versus credo or believer baptism. Um, do you want to expand more on that specifically on the question is baptism as an infant sufficient or must one choose baptism as an adult? Yeah. I mean, I don't think I want to use the word must to say that if you don't get baptized on your own profession of faith, that you're damned or something. Um, I think that you have, you need to act according to conscience, right? Like there's a place in Romans that says that which isn't done out of faith is sin. 
So I think you should look, if this is an issue for you, I think you should look at the passages on baptism. I think you should read the requisite literature, you know, which isn't that much. I mean, it's, you're talking about 20, maybe 20 pages to get a good explanation of both sides. And you should try to come to an agreement on what the Bible teaches. Right. Um, and then you should do whatever that is. And the, the danger here is if you come to a, a belief about what scripture says, and then you don't do it. That's the that's the danger, I think. Um, obviously, I think that there's a right answer. I think that that right answer is to get baptized um, on your own profession of faith. I don't say baptized as an adult. That's not the distinction, remember. The difference between pedo is the Greek word for child. So, pedo baptism is child baptism. Um, credo baptism is the Latin for I believe. So, credo baptism is being baptized on your own profession of faith. Right? That is, it's your profession of faith, not somebody else's, that is the basis for your baptism. And so, credo baptism is the what we're talking about. And um, you should read the scriptures and do what you think is right. It's not, I don't think it's a question of like, must you do something? You should do what you think is right. Um, and, the, but if you think pedo baptism is right, infant baptism is right, then High Point might not be the long-term place for you in the local church. Because that is a pretty strong conviction that we hold. And that's because I don't think the Bible is that ambiguous. I think it's pretty straightforward on this, even though I respect people who disagree. And you mean you mean in terms of membership at High Point? On being stra- the Bible being straightforward? No, you're saying High Point not, might not be a long-term place for you, but you're talking about membership because we require right. that for membership? Yeah. Right. We require people to be baptized on their own profession of faith for membership, yes. That's a requirement. Yeah. All right. Another baptism question from this morning. Did I misunderstand what Nick said, or did he get Acts 16.33 backwards? The baptism followed after the washing of the wounds. This is in reference to Paul um, and the jailer. Um, So this person says, I was distracted, so I may have misheard what Nick was saying. And Acts 16.33... No, the, no, this person is right and Nick was wrong. I made a very strong point out of a misunderstanding, out of a, a faulty memory of the verse is what happened. So yes, I, I deserve to be corrected. Yeah, the verse says, at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. Mm-hmm. But it was, it was still immediately that he and his household <laughs> were baptized, just not as immediately as... Mm-hmm. Before the wounds. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, technically, the word is chi in Greek, which means and. So it, sa- it, it says, and at that hour. Where is that? In Acts 16.33. So it says, and, right, he took, but it, sa- but it says that he cleansed them first. And then it says, also, he was baptized in all of his household immediately. So it's reasonable to assume that because of the order of the sentence that the wounds were cleansed first. And that's how most translations translate it. Yes. Um, technically it doesn't say, um, and immediately is used relative to the baptizing rather than the wounds being cleaned. But I think it's, I think it's better to translate it the way that person second guessed me that, 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 that they were cleansed first and then immediately they were baptized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I misremembered it and made a very strong point on that bad memory, which is unfortunate and embarrassing. Great. Let's move on to the next question. All right. (laughs) Okay. 
These are some related to the sermon. Is now a good time to encourage uncommitted Christians to consider getting baptized? Every time is a good time <laughs> to encourage uncommitted Christians to get baptized if they haven't taken that pledge, so long as they are doing it as a movement towards commitment. I'm assuming they mean relative to COVID-19? Um, I was, I was assuming, yeah, I guess so. I was assuming that they meant, I was wondering if they meant for the church to encourage, like for you and your sermons, um, versus I was reading it that versus like individuals encouraging other people, but that was the emphasis I was focused on instead of COVID versus whatever other time. Um, yeah. Yeah. But every time is great. A great time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think, and I think evangelicals or biblical historical Christians or people in the revivalist tradition, they, we tend to overemphasize the sinner's prayer rather than the oath of belonging, which is baptism. Hmm. And I think that that's a, that's a problem and that's not, that shouldn't be. And we should fix that. Right. So Hmm. confessing faith is a big deal. It's important and it's saving, but I, I think we need to to co-emphasize the centrality of baptism in the New Testament's teaching of what it means to belong to Christ. That's all. Mm-hmm. All right. Next question. This one came in after this sermon, so that's a little context for this. But I want to understand baptism a little more in the context of church history. From my 20-minute Google search, it looks like infant baptisms were already common by the 3rd century AD, and it seems the practice wasn't questioned until the Protestant Reformation. So I'm curious to know if you have any idea how and why infant baptisms began and why this practice wasn't controversial until the Reformation over a thousand years ago, later. Mm-hmm. Um. So there's, oh gosh, there's so many different kinds of reasons here. Um, There are two lines of development in the early church relative to some of these practices. Um, One is the line of thinking about salvation itself. And the other is a line of thinking in relationship to the development of what the church is. So it's, it's, um, your salvation theology versus your church theology or your ecclesiology. In the early church, there developed a, what you might call an evangelical or reformation salvation theology, like how people are saved, like how that works. But there developed a very Catholic ecclesiology or church theology, right? So there was very early a well-established doctrine about the priesthood, that Christian leaders were priests, not, not just pastors, but they were priests. Now, you're not going to find that anywhere in the Bible, in the, in the Bible. Right, like you can read the entire New Testament and be like, okay, where does it refer to Christian leaders as priests? And the answer is nowhere, not anywhere, not one place. It refers to all Christians as in a priesthood of believers that we're all living stones, that we're all a nation of royal priests. But you will not find in one place a Christian pastor or leader or minister referred to as a priest, and yet. There's this very strong notion of continuity between the Old Testament and the New, and that because in the Old Testament, these ministers before God were priests, that there was a continuity between those two things, right? And then that affected our their view of the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, that like if the sacrifice of the Old Testament was done by priests, then the sacrifice of the New Testament must be the Eucharist or the body and blood of Christ, and that should be presided over by this priest class and so on. And so you got the Mass and the Lord, and you got basically this whole liturgical sacramental tradition that that has 
eventually evolved into is modern day Roman Catholicism or some vestiges of it exist in the Anglican church and the Lutheran church. And um, there's of course lots of Eastern Orthodox churches and, and, and there's various kinds of Catholic churches. So there's, there's a number of, there's, there's, there's piles of these different denominations, right? So it is true that in that ecclesiology, right? That, that line of like thinking about the priesthood and that sort of thing, there developed this continuity with the old Testament that circumcision and baptism were in continuity. And that people being baptized on their own profession of faith in the New Testament, these are all first generation, first go around Christians, right? And so, yes, they're all baptized on their own profession of faith, but what happens when they have children, right? Then then don't you baptize their children? Just like if someone came into the Jewish community and was circumcised at 30, but they had children, wouldn't their children be circumcised on the eighth day, right? That makes sense. So they saw this, this level of continuity. And that was pretty widely accepted. It's true. Now, some of those teachings, though, were disputed in the early church and were disputed as the church developed. For example, um, very early, there was also a doctrine about the celibacy of priests, right? By the Council of Nicaea in 325, um, there was sort of church doctrine legislation to make sure that the priests were celibate and unmarried, right? And the only reason it didn't pass at Nicaea was there was this really old African bishop, who was single himself and had been blinded. He had had an eye gouged out in one of the persecutions. And he stood up at Nicaea and said, how dare you say that priests must be celibate and single when the apostles never taught this and never required it. And it has not been part of what it means to be a Catholic Christian, right? And he and that guy won the day at Nicaea, but only for a time. And then later on, that sort of became dogma and became part of the church, right? One of the things that happened in the Reformation during the period of what's called humanism is there was a movement in Europe of people to say, let's go back to the original sources, right? What we're getting is developments on developments on developments on developments. And basically the Catholic church fungal functioned kind of like a legal society on precedent. And so if you wanted to talk about theology within the Catholic church in Luther's day, it was precedent on precedent on precedent on precedent, the different councils, the different writings of bishops, the different papal decrees, and so on. And so you're basically were working through a legal library, right? By the time you got to the beginning of the Reformation, the period of humanism, people are saying people were retranslating all of the ancient Greek works, and there was a lot of interest in ancient classical works. What happened was is that for the first time in literally a thousand years, at least since the translation of the Vulgate in the fourth and fifth century, Christians in mass at an academic level began to look back again and look at the original sources. Remember there weren't universities until the turn of the first millennia, right? So, you know, by, by between a thousand AD and 1200 AD, you got the development of the first universities, university of Paris and Oxford and some of these. And then you begin to get like actual academic disciplines and you begin to actually get libraries that had lots of books in them. And the, the printing press too. I'm not, yet. I'm not sure not where yet, that falls. You're in getting this. like we're getting close, right? But see, because the printing press didn't exist, the development of European libraries and European academic disciplines was very slow. Because every time you had to make another copy of a book, somebody had to literally write out a manuscript by hand, right? So, um, people just don't. I think sometimes people just don't grasp how slow some of these evolutions were, and I think they also don't grasp how corrupting some of these unhelpful teachings were right? To the point where you got to Luther and all the priests were celibate. And in Rome, there were whorehouses just for priests, right? Like there was a lot of, there was a lot of issues, right? And there was a lot of corruption. And Luther didn't believe that infant baptism was one of those corruptions. 
He didn't believe that. He believed in the continuity of the Old Testament. He believed in the priesthood. He believed in all that stuff. It was other reformers who believed that Luther didn't go far enough. And that one of the things that we need to do is to go back to the scriptures and reevaluate baptism in its development again, and to, and to go back to the sources and to figure out what the early church did, what the apostles actually taught. And it was the belief of the Anabaptists, at least, that what the apostles taught was that people should be baptized on their own profession of faith. And so it's true that they turned their back on a thousand years of church tradition. That's true. Absolutely true. Um, and the question is, could the church have been wrong for a thousand years? Is that something that God would have allowed? Is that something that's conceivable, right? I think it is. I think it's perfectly conceivable. I don't have any problem believing that. Um, and I don't have any problem believing that he's, God still loved his church and that he was still working in his church. I don't believe that Roman Catholics or or Greek Orthodox or those folks, um, because they believe in infant baptism or like anathema, or God hates them or something. Um, I, th- I just think that I think that that was a tradition that went wrong, and I and I think it was because in the Roman Catholic Church, the ecclesial tradition theologically w- overwrote the soteriological or the salvation theology tradition. And what Luther and Calvin did, and then the later Anabaptists and so on, was they ch- they flipped that role. They said no, the early church's salvation theology, their soteriology, was better than their ecclesiology. Their ecclesiology was actually the worst part of their theology. Their soteriology was the better part of their theology. And then, so in rehabilitating this, that salvational theology, you begin to realize there are not seven sacraments in the Bible. Like, they're not there. Like, these ordinances are demanded of baptism and communion, but they're not. I mean, communion is treated very sacredly, but you can hold to a, essentially a sacramental view of communion and not be Catholic. And so... This person is correct to say that um, credo-baptism goes against a large swath of the history of the church. And one of the things you got to ask yourself is this. If it can be argued that in the first couple centuries, especially the time of the apostles, people were baptized on their own, on their own profession of faith, and later on people were baptized as part of the covenant community within, based on their family connections, which of those sides do you want to be on? I mean, for me, I'd rather be with the apostles. And Jesus and so on, you know, and that doesn't bother me that I'm going against a lot of other folks, although I hate that. I don't like the disunity it creates. And I, I hate to think that so many of my forefathers may have been mistaken about such an important thing, but I'm not going to stay wrong because I, I don't, I, I, I feel bad about it. I feel like that would be a real cowardice on my part. So now there may be some people that read the data here and they go, oh no, I think the infant baptism thing is correct. Well, then fine. Okay, that, 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 that's what you believe. Then you should follow your conviction unless you're otherwise persuaded. But you shouldn't stay with infant baptism just because it was done for a thousand years. I don't think. You know? Yeah. there's. A, I think there's a lot of examples in the church and in history about that. Where people just were wrong for a long time and it was tradition and people didn't know better sometimes because they didn't have access to the scriptures on their own or whatever, for whatever reason. But yeah, the sea of Peter, the idea that the, the papal sea is like an ancient thing. Like that was pretty early. Right. But I don't agree with it. <laughs> you know, and it's a little weird for a Protestant to be like, well, you know, pedo baptism, that was, that was true for a thousand years. Well, so were a lot of other doctrines we rejected when the, the reformation happened. Most of those were hundreds of years old, if not a thousand. So I don't, I don't think on that basis we should keep this one. Yeah. You know, 
And a different example, I mean, from the Old Testament, that I'm not equating Catholics with Pharisees at all, but just another example of how tradition can develop outside of the scriptures on its own. Um, the, I mean, the Pharisees and other Jewish sects, they developed traditions that became they right. equated them with the law, but no, you're it wasn't absolutely right in the scriptures. This. You know, it just developed over time. So it's, it happens all over the place. <laughs> yeah. And it was very, right, rabbinical scholarship is very legal in that sense. It's like it, legal, legalistic isn't really the concept, right? It's the idea that like building precedent upon precedent, what Jesus called it was the traditions of men. And the reformers were very strong on this. They, they said, listen, a lot of these problems in the Catholic Church are the tra- what Jesus called the traditions of men. Right, people at one time made a decision about how something should be, and then others made tr- decisions on that and decisions on that, and pretty soon, the your precedent you treat like it's the word of God rather than the original thing God actually said. And he's like, "You shouldn't do that." Jesus is like, "You can't do that. You got to you got to start like you can make judgments and share them with each other, and it's fine to have those traditions so long as they are in agreement with the word of God. And whenever they aren't, so much worse for your traditions." not the word of God, right? And so that is a fundamental part of the Reformation is that rejection of the quote traditions of men. And so that idea, and of course, it's not a bad thing that the Roman Catholic Church was trying to create precedence that is decision upon decision in very thorny and difficult topics. I mean, that's not a bad thing, but it went bad. I mean, the 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 the, the Reformation Christians, like the Protestants, like our argument is it, it wasn't in itself bad, but it went bad. Right. And it needed reforming. And often those precedents were formed to serve and initially to serve the yeah. word of God, to help people right. follow the word so of God. Most of it was com- so common people could understand it because most didn't read Latin and, and there weren't, there weren't what were, were called vulgar translations, translations in the vernacular of the people. And because the Bible wasn't in their language, people were dependent on the theology, not the Bible. People didn't know the Bible. People had never read the Bible. They had heard the doctrines of the church and were taught religion. They were taught the teachings of the church, right? The idea that of today where we, re- we read the Bible was unheard of in those days, partly because people couldn't read. A lot of people couldn't read, partly because you couldn't get a Bible because people had to copy one down by hand, and partly because the church was afraid if people read the Bible, they would misinterpret it. It was better for them to learn the doctrine of the church. It's like the game of telephone, <laughs> kind of. Like, you know, it, the message kind of gets diluted. <laughs> yeah, and listen, that was that was true for a thousand years. L- listen, the, the idea that the church doesn't read the Bible was true for a thousand years, right? It couldn't have been otherwise, right? So, so there's a lot of things that I think were true for a long time that needed to change. This is one. Okay, next question. From a few arguments I've seen in support of infant baptism, it seems that it has a lot to do with original sin. From my understanding, the Catholic Church believes that when infants are baptized, they are receiving a grace from God because their original sin is removed through baptism, and that this baptism is even oh wait, hold on. Is even when regeneration happens and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit begins. So my question is, in this particular theology, can a person who was baptized as a baby grow up to no longer be regenerate if they never actually put their faith in Christ? Like, when do they lose their regeneration? Or is it assumed that that person has the Holy Spirit and is saved even if there is no fruit evident in their lives? And can you please also talk about the Protestant understanding of original sin? Man, okay. So... (laughs) Original sin 
is not a reference mainly to the original sin. That is um, Adam and Eve eating of the fruit that they were commanded not to eat of, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, the original sin is a doctrine is the idea that we bear the guilt of Adam forensically, meaning that um, Adam and Eve deserved punishment for their transgression. And we bear that guilt, that legal guilt that deserves punishment. So it's not just the idea that because Adam and Eve sinned, they set a bad example for us and we were reared in that sin, or even that there's an ontological change, meaning that something happens inside of us as human beings to make us want to not obey God, what we call the flesh. But more than that, the argument is that there is a guilt in Adam and Eve that is passed on to us, and we deserve to die as they do. Right Now, Protestants have taken two views on this. There are some Protestants who just take the Catholic view, which is that we have original sin, and that original sin is forgiven or taken away in baptism. Others repudiate the idea of original sin altogether and say that um, the idea that we are guilty in Adam forensically is false. Original sin is right in that we bear the curse of Adam and that we are broken in sin and we have the flesh, a desire that is disordered, and we bear the disordered nature of Adam and therefore will all sin and deserve punishment. But we we are not we cannot be damned for original sin ourselves, right? Because it says in the book of Ezekiel, a, a son will not die for his father's sin. Well, how, why would we then die for our first father's sin, right? Um, I personally have never been able to connect deeply with the concept of original sin as guilt. I connect with it really powerfully as a effect to human the human condition. That I want to sin, that, that the flesh is alive in me, that there's something wrong with me from the day I was born. And when I was in, like it says in Psalm 50, when I was in, I was in, in sin, my mother conceived me. Right. Even though I still bear God's image. Mm-hmm. Um, so. But you're not bearing the guilt to clarify. That means you're not bearing the guilt though, of Adam's sin on yourself. You're bearing okay, the what curse I, what of I, it. What I technically, what I said, Jill is I don't connect with that doctrine. Right. So what I mean is when people say that, I don't go, oh yeah, that's definitely right. I think that seems weird. Mm-hmm. Like I, why? I don't see how guilt passes like that. Mm-hmm. Now, am I sure it doesn't? I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know how guilt works. Like it works how God says it works. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, you could try to make a purely rational argument where you're talking about all kinds of moral assumptions built in an argument that could go wrong in a hundred different ways. Right. So I don't, I don't connect with that doctor very well. I don't mm-hmm. see why that would be the case. And I don't see why it's very relevant because we all are self condemned with our own, plenty of our own sins. Right. But one of the reasons why this matters is because um, adults who believe in pedo baptism because of its cleansing of original sin, believe that therefore a child who isn't baptized but dies before the age of accountability does not have any of their own guilt that would damn them, but they have original sin, which would damn them. So baptism is necessary to save infants. Does that make sense? Because if they die in infancy mm-hmm. and they're freed of original sin, they go to heaven. Now think about this doctrine developing in a time when infant mortality or mortality mm-hmm. before the age of five was like 50%. Half your children were going to die before they reached the age of five. Right, so whether or not babies go to heaven and what you need to do to get babies in heaven is a big deal, mm-hmm. right? And it was a huge part of 
of parents dealing with their grief because if they they believe that they don't was necessary for their baby to go to heaven, even if their baby died, which happened very commonly, they could feel like you know their baby was in a better place, right? Um, Calvin believed it was based on unconditional election. If babies were elect, they went to heaven. If they weren't elect, they went to hell. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I just I feel like this is a case of people acting like they know more than they do. I don't know what you can prove about this. I do not see a clear doctrine of original sin in the New Testament. I just don't see it there. And so I I'm not persuaded that it exists. I am definitely persuaded that there is a flesh that is a disordered human condition rooted in the fall. Absolutely. But the idea that sin carries forward, the only place that really seems to argue that is that place uh, in Romans 5 or 6 that talks about how like um, through Adam all died. That's kind of where that comes from. That mm-hmm. like in the, in Adam's death and giving himself over to sin, all died. And if death is a punishment for sin, then all human beings bear that punishment. But you could argue that the, like the punishment is death. That's That's the punishment for original sin is that we die now instead of not dying. And that there's no salvation from that. You're going to die. So I, I, I'm not sure about the argument there. So mm-hmm. anyway, I, all that to say, like, yes, that is the view in paedobaptism among the high church traditions that it cleanses from original sin. <clears throat> um, evangelical Protestants have taken different views on that. Some have stuck with paedobaptism. Others have rejected the idea of original sin. Others have said that um, God... Uh, What most evangelicals actually say is they believe that God counts the righteousness of Christ on behalf of children who can't make the decision for themselves universally. I'm not sure that's biblical either. I don't know. I don't think the Bible tells us what happens to children who die before the capacity of faith, other than that David was pretty sure that his child who died was going on before him wherever he was going. That's it. I don't know if anywhere else the Bible says anything about what happens to children who die. I think you have to trust them to the grace of God. And I, I assume that God, that God, um, what's the positive connive that God cr- just f- sorts out a way to apply salvation to children. I suspect that that's what he does, that he saves them in Christ apart from our rituals. Yeah. And it's it's difficult because any sort of belief, whether the Calvinistic version of election that you were talking about or um, paedo-baptism, I mean, both of them are some sort of belief that we can hold on to to make ourselves feel like we know what's happening <laughs> to our children. But yeah, it is it is this, we don't know and we do have to trust God. And that's yeah, really, I mean, that's really hard. A definite answer from their mm-hmm. church. The problem is I don't I don't have one to give. I mean, not that not one that I'm as sure of as the statement would be. You know, I believe in the goodness of God, and I believe some things you just have to trust to the goodness of God. And I think when it comes to Christian ritual, you need to obey what God says in the scriptures. And I think that that's that we're supposed to be baptized under a profession of faith. And so I think God contrives a different way of saving children. I don't think He needs them to be baptized for Him to save them. Or he, or I think he would have taught infant baptism. This gets at another part of that question. And so, 
this person asked what basically what at what point do babies or children lose their regeneration, which we also can't know, but um, that is the second part of it because at some point they have to become believers themselves on their own profession of faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, most pe- most theolo- theologians that use the word regenerate use it as a irrevocable act of God. So if you become if you experience regeneration, you can't lose it. Um, and so in the in the Calvinist or Reformed tradition, if you are thought to be saved and then you don't persevere and in the end fall away, people will say you were never really saved. That is that is whatever you experienced spiritually, it wasn't the miracle of regeneration, because those who experience regeneration persevere to the end. By definition, um, so I so I don't know anybody who talks about losing your regeneration. I know people talk about losing your salvation, but they usually have a different doctrine of regeneration. You know, so I don't I don't I mean it gets a little touchy because Wesleyan theology tries to get everything like put everything together. You know, and and so I don't want to be too unilateral about it. But yeah, so but this in this what we were just talking about a baby would not be regenerate. It would make no. God might sort out a way to save them if they die, but they're not regenerate because that would happen once they profess their own faith. Yeah. Okay. So let me, I want to confess something. Um, I don't spend a lot of time studying the baptismal theology of pedo Baptist denominations because if the first argument that you should baptize children is prima facie wrong, like if I just don't agree with it, that one, then all of the inner logics of the theology of pedobaptism fall too. So I'm not interested in them. You know what I mean? So I haven't learned them like up and down because I don't I don't think they're relevant because the original argument, should we baptize infants, to me fails on the basis of scripture and on the basis of the earliest message of the apostles in the church. And so because of that, I don't I don't think you if you can't even prove from the Bible that infants should be baptized, I don't see how you can prove from the Bible all the other stuff. Right? And I don't think any of this can be proved. So I I just tend to dismiss it, frankly. And so I don't think that, I think the idea of baptismal regeneration is wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's helpful. I wanted to spend, I mean, we had a lot of questions on baptism. So thank you for getting into the ins and outs of that. Um, Okay, let's move away from baptism. We have a few more questions. The first one is HPC is a non-denominational or is non-denominational holding its own counsel and not covenantally bound with any other larger community or apostolic ministry. Why is this acceptable to God and not acceptable for individual believers? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say for two reasons. Uh, first, the uh, structure of authority within the local church is well laid out in the scriptures. Um, the, However, the, the teaching for how apostolic authority functions is not. It's presumed everywhere. But it's not clear how that would pass forward into a new generation of apostolic figures. And so, um, nor does it lay out exactly how the church would be covenantally bound with other churches. Um, it was just assumed that all, the, all churches were part of the Orthodox Church, like the Church of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't until the Great Schism that there was even the idea, right? Like, I mean, yeah, there were some subdivisions, but generally speaking, everybody understood what the church Catholic meant. All the churches were one church, right? Um, there was some disagreement about how you how authority ran between them all, like, but not much, right? 
this is in some ways similar to the Pedro Baptist question because the um, the role of the monoepiscopate, that is the bishop over cities and, and the, even the establishment of metropolitans, which is a, a bishop over bishops in a bunch of cities, was was the concept of bishop, I think, was functioning by 120 AD, which is very early. Right? That's that's some of Jesus' disciples' disciples were still alive. It's one generation. Um so, however, I would argue this. If you read the New Testament carefully, First Timothy, Titus, and some other places teach that everywhere there's elders, everywhere they have authority in the local church, everywhere that they have certain kinds of roles, and, and those are pretty well circumscribed. And the role of the apostle in the church is mentioned in Ephesians, like it's already understood and not described, and it sounds like an itinerant office. Those offices are described in a document from the second century called the Apostolic Constitutions. And in the Apostolic Constitutions, the local church has the authority to decide whether or not to receive people engaging in what sometimes is called the fivefold ministries. That is the apostle, prophet, evangelist, teacher, and pastor. Those offices were itinerant offices in the early New Testament church. And the local church elders were supposed to discern whether or not they should receive people who came to their church itinerantly, like moving around, ministering to different churches. And so because of the teaching of the New Testament and the teaching of the earliest documents of the church relative to those offices, um, I do think a independent congregational church um, that follows those guidelines is biblical. Now, I do not believe that High Point Church should function um, disconnected from other churches. I believe that we should see ourselves as part of the body of Christ and the wider church Catholic, meaning universal church, and any church that is um, part of the church that is they believe the gospel are our brothers and sisters. And we should relate to them as our brothers and sisters. I don't think that means they have authority over us. And there's lots of denominations that function that way, that the churches are together in a denomination to do different things, but they aren't actually, the denomination has no authority over the local churches, right? That's just called congregationalism. It's one of the three major views of church government. One being the Episcopal view that you should have bishops. The second being the Presbyterian view that local, different local elders come and come together in, um, what do they call it? It's not a vestry. They call it a, I think it's just a presbytery. But there's a, there's another word that Presbyterians use for, for a group of elders to come together in a, from different churches. Um, and then there's congregational. And um, without going into a long thing about the merits and demerits of each one, I think the congregational view is probably the best, um, but it's, I mean, it is arguable, but, but you'll notice that none of the three views that the church has held, the Episcopal view, the Presbyterian view, and the congregational view, none of them are apostolic. None of them believe that the bishops are apostles, right? They do believe in what's called apostolic succession, that there is a continuity and ordination from one apostle to another, and that everybody who is a priest has like their ordination has come down from the earliest apostles, but that's not the same thing as the apostolic ministry. Like it would be in like the charismatic movement or something like that. So there's, there's a few like cross categories here that without getting more specific, I'd have to make a lot of assumptions to assume what, what we should do. But I think that it is important to say that even though we're not part of a, an official denomination, we do believe we are in covenantal union with other churches of all denominations and should behave as such. And that's one of the reasons why we have so many church partnerships with other churches and with other missionaries, because we believe it's our job to do that, 
to find other gospel-believing churches and partner with them because they are our brothers and sisters. And under Christ's authority, we should do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the spirit of this question to me sounds like, um, it seems sort of like, okay, well, if we're not doing this as a church body, which you just explained what we are or are not doing, um, but it seems like if we're not doing that as a church body, how, why should I be involved in a local church if I, if we don't need yeah. to be tied to something? Yeah, the and answer that's is, not, is simply that those are categorically different. That's not a fair... It's an inapt comparison. Is, yes. Right? It's, yeah. the, the, it's a, the two are non-sequitur. So the Bible explicitly says that the congregation must govern itself in a certain kind of way and doesn't claim that it must be connected to other congregations in any particular way other than as members of the universal church. Um, and yet it does say of individuals that they must be connected to a local church. It assumes that everywhere and teaches it and fosters it and argues it. And so I, I, that, I mean, that, I mean, I'll, I'll give that person points for creativity. I mean, that, I mean, that's an interesting line of logic, but I don't <laughs> think it really, mm-hmm. it really works. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, next question. How do you balance being involved in programs at church, such as youth ministry, worship, men's and women's ministry, relationships in the church, leading your family as a church, and connecting with neighbors or non-Christians. It seems like there are so many ways to make the church better, but almost no time. Should we do all of these things, or is it a life season thing, or what? Yeah, I think life season thing is an important concept, because I think especially when you're in the kid years, like one of the, one of the reasons why I don't demand that much of people or haven't since I've been a pastor at High Point is that I've always had at least three children, and I've been in the family phase the whole time. So I look around, I'm like, I don't understand how any of these people do any of this stuff because I can barely survive going to work and being a parent. Like that's it. And so I do think like, there's a lot of families with kids that like, they're like, I, I, I want to go to a small group. I just don't feel like we can do it right now. So I do think there's some life stage-ishness to it. I think if you're in like a kid's life stage, connecting yourself to the ministries that your kids are in is probably the most straightforward way to to go about this. Um, yeah, I, I think it's true. I think that that's all true. I, I th- it just, this comes back to that whole, all the things we said about stewardship, you can't do everything you have to choose. So look at your passions and your gifts and uh, where the, where do you put your work? Does it seem to make a difference? Where do people seem to care about what happens and um, what can you make better? And so on. I mean, I, th- I think it's a question of stewardship. I, I think it's true. There's a lot of stuff. But there's also a lot of people and the, you don't need to be in everything. So you just, you gotta, you gotta pick, you know? Right. Yeah. And this is a two-sided question too, because we also are very worldly people in how we live. And so I think part of stewardship is also looking at how you use your time. And if it's not, if you're not as if you're filling your time with things that you don't need to be filling it with, I mean that is also a question of conscience and <laughs> stewardship and all those things. But um, t- t- if you're watching a lot of TV or if there's things that you can cut out that aren't that you could serve instead, um, it's I mean it's looking at that plus also what can I do and how much can I do and that's what I can do and that's it. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's a lot um, more you can say about that, about demanding professions and life structures and all that kind of thing, but we just, yep. I don't want to take an yep. hour on that question. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right. So can you speak to the role of the Holy Spirit in making our passionate decisions towards God permanent? Yeah, I, I think that the Holy Spirit accesses our passions, right? But it, it, it also, one of the reasons why I think some of the work of the Holy Spirit is referred to as conviction is because he, he's trying to access our will and persuade our... So the Holy Spirit is working in our hearts, right? And, and working in our whole inner selves, and so he's not just evoking emotion, right? He's also persuading us of the truth and reminding us of truths and standing against us in the conviction of our heart and telling us in our conscience something is wrong. And so he's accessing more faculties than just our emotional faculties. And he's trying to help us bring those things together. Like I think one of the Holy Spirit's interests is, is that we would, our will, our cognitive reasoning, like our deliberative mind and our passions would all come together and go in the same direction. And so I think in that sense, the Holy Spirit is um, is profoundly involved in our inner life towards trying to make those permanent because then hopefully the Holy Spirit will lead us to these next steps that we need to take. Yeah. All right. We are going to stop there because we've been going oh, for over an hour. All right. But <laughs> we've we have a few more questions that we'll get to hopefully yeah, another yeah. AMA session, but those are the ones cool. most related to the sermon. So we'll stick with that. Yeah, you're all right. Well, thanks, Nick. Helpful. And thank you all for your really good questions. Yeah. yeah. All right. We will see you guys next time. listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. You can find more episodes online at highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on most podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Overcast. If you are listening on a podcast app, hit subscribe to get notified of future episodes. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.